Hey everybody, before we jump into our show today, I am super excited because this is the 100th episode of Business Meets Spirituality. So today we have a very, very special guest. We also have Hallie. But before we jump in the show, we have, you want to introduce yourself? I'm Asher. And how old are you, Asher? Seven. And Asher is my son, right? And he has a special message for everybody today about moderation, right? Mm-hmm. What does moderation mean to you? Mm, exercise and eating healthy. Yeah, and you can have some treats in there, right? What's your favorite treat? Warheads. Warheads. <laughs> is it because you like the sour stuff? Yeah, awesome. So what do you do for exercise? Mm, I go to my trainer. Great. What does your trainer do? Um, he helps, helps me exercise. Yeah, and keep you focused. And he also talks to you about foods, right? What does he talk to you about foods? That I have to try a lot of, di- I have to try different foods every day. Yes, exactly. What you do, even if you don't like it, you still try it, right? Because right now you seem to be fixed on like one or two foods, <laughs> oatmeal and syrup and chicken fingers. <laughs> so we're trying to break that habit, right? Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so what did you do at Vasta yesterday at your training? I did test day. Great. And what is test day? Test day is a day where he tests what I can do. That's awesome. And what, what did you test on? I tested how many push-ups and sit-ups I could do in a minute. I did 24 Mm sit-ups and 23 push-ups. That's awesome. And what message would you love to give to our listeners as a thank you for um, being in almost 50 countries and having everybody listen to our podcast? What would you like to tell them? Thank you for listening to Daddy's Podcast. (laughs) Thank you. Hey everybody, I'm Adam Hergenrother. This is Business Meets Spirituality. We believe in personal growth through business success. Today I am joined by my chief of staff, Hallie. Hallie. Good morning. Whoa, see, did you just, did you just say good morning? Yes, That's an, it was I, sarcastic. I know it was sarcastic, <laughs> exactly. But today we are super excited because this is our 100th episode. Um, some fun facts about that. We've been in almost 50% of all the countries um, that have, that exist mm-hmm. <laughs> currently. And I thought it was interesting that, um, uh, we are dominating the charts in Estonia. So th- I kind of bring that up as a hundredth episode. Thank you, Estonia and UK. And I think we were on the U S top charts as well too. Um, so thank you to everybody for yes. listening, um, for, to all of us, to Holly and I kind of rambling and we love your comments that you get back and forth, um, for how we kind of do this podcast. So we're excited to be here with you guys today. Yeah, And that it's reaching, yes. the, you know, and resonating yes. with, um, people from all over the world and in honor of that, perhaps we're going to travel yes. a little bit on this episode. That's a good way to lead into this. Yeah. I like that. Um, the, uh, so this is the hundredth episode. And what we thought we'd do today is do an untold story of, I may have shared it a couple times. Small, I was gonna say, if you've been around for like seven it. or eight years, yes, you yes, may have heard this story yes. before. But I um, traveled and uh, hiked Kilimanjaro and then spent seven days in Tanzania in the Serengeti um, at a place called Sangita. And there was actually some, it was a big turning point in my life. And this happened in June of 2014. Mm-hmm. So we're seven years on the anniversary, um, just about the anniversary of it. And there was, there was four or five things that really stood out from hiking it and spending time in, in Africa and in Tanzania um, that I want to share with you guys today. So it's a fun story. It's kind of, it's, it's interesting, but there's some really good kind of um, lessons that we can learn from the story itself. Number one is actually how it started was I was actually at a, um, 
I was at a training event and I was having lunch with a friend of mine and a friend came up and sat down and he had just came back from hiking Kilimanjaro mm-hmm. and he was telling us the story. So hopefully this ignites somebody else to go out and, and do something, whether it's hiking Kilimanjaro or um, just a local hike around your area, just get out. Right. And it sounded so awesome. He was kind of explaining some of the things that he learned. So I was like, wow, that sounds like an amazing experience. So, um, interestingly enough, my son is in the room while we're actually filming this and he was born like three or four months earlier before I went. So it was a big discussion cause we had to plan it for a year. And my wife's like, you know, Asher's going to be like four months old and, and she's like, but go, she's always supporting me. So it was really cool. And the way we actually timed this event was, um, we went over there with, with my buddy Nick and Aaron and there was three of us and we wanted to go up and summit the day that there was a full moon. So we booked it like eight months in advance, June, it was like mid June, there was a full moon. So that way, cause you're above the cloud line. Cause it's like 19,100 feet, just under 20,000 feet of vertical, which is a high level, by the way, if you've never been up that high. And so once you get about, about 15,000, you're typically above the cloud line. So you don't need headlamps. And at the last mm-hmm. night you actually summit starting at around 11 or PM and we'll get into the, the whole story, but we wanted to make sure that we did it cause we heard the best time to do this was to do it was full moon. So you just, it's like bright as can be at that level. So we booked it and, you know, of course we get over there and, you know, the, can, can I, yeah, jump in. Sorry. I've got like yes. a couple questions. So it was just a quick, like, I'm just going to go do this. Like what really prompted you? You just wanted the experience. Why did you and Nick and Aaron decide to do it after that, hearing that one conversation? Yeah, we heard it. And literally I think that day, um, we just said, like, that sounds amazing. Want that experience. I think this goes back to what we always talk about with live, learn and play every day. And nobody knows when they're going to die, but you know, you are. And so at the time it was like, that sounds like an amazing experience. I love pushing myself physically. I love pushing myself mentally, which is more that actually ended up being more of a mental push Mm -hmm. than it did a physical push. Um, and you know, I wanted the experience of being able to do that and they did too. And so instantly, I think within a week we were signed up. Literally. And then it was a year. Yeah, it was later? like eight. Yeah, it was, it was. I think we signed up in like, or I think we were there in August because I remember it being extremely hot when we were there at this training event. I think it was in August in Austin. Mm, so how hot uh, it was. Yeah. So and then it was the next year, it was basically just under a year we uh, had to book for it in order to make it, make it happen that way. And what did your training and preparation look like before you? Yeah, I mean, went? um, I just, I did a lot of hiking, right? I mean, I live in Vermont, so I'm fortunate enough to be able to do that. But then also when I couldn't, I'd put a um, treadmill. treadmill. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and like a high level of incline. And you can, just, you can just walk on that in case you can't because your calves are different, different things. And obviously we couldn't train an altitude in Vermont because the highest mountain we have is like 4,500 feet. Um, so we couldn't really train there, but we trained a lot in the mountains. I would run up it, I would run down. And actually during that same time of year, I think I ended up doing a Spartan beast that year. Um, so I was already doing a lot of runs up and down the mountain. I think I would run up the down mountain two or three times mm. and kind of go up and over the mountain, then back over as kind of my training. So I had that kind of in my pocket coming into it. Um, was it important for the, like the strength or was it more about the endurance that you needed to train for? I didn't really know. I thought actually going into, it, I actually thought the, the hike was going to be harder. And for me, the hike was not hard at all. In fact, if there, if altitude wasn't an issue, I'm pretty sure I could have been up and down the mountain in a day. Hmm. Um, if, if I had started early enough, in fact, people like Sherpas, well, especially are, now, cause you're like yeah, pretty advanced but, and all that stuff. But, but if Sherpa Sherpas that are out there, they take a different route. 
Um, but they run up Kilimanjaro and back in the day, there's actually a race that they do every year. And the thing is that it, they don't affect them because the, they're Sherpas and they have the ability to be able to withstand the altitude. Um, well, they're acclimated to they're, it. Yeah, exactly. They're just acclimated because they do it every day. Right. right? There's a tons of Sherpas up there. I mean, we had Sherpas on our trip too as well, which had basically no water and just were carrying everything for us to make it easier. But um, anyways, they can go up it. So people go up and down that. I think they did it in like 16 hours. So I say a day, not like a eight to five. Right. It like was a like full a 24 hours, Exactly. Yeah. It was like a 16 hour day, I believe. Um, somebody ran that up their different route. So you could go up and back in 24 hours if you, if you really, depending on where you started to, um, but anyway, so we, you know, we kind of prepared for this and it was just a really fun event. I, this is why I always think about planning your vacations ahead. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things. Cause you, you're not, you're not getting lost and looking forward to it, but it keeps you focused on the reasons why you're working out, mm-hmm. why you're eating healthy, and what you're doing yeah, right? every day, you know, and how you're saving up for it because it was an expensive trip for me at the time. Right. And, and all these different things. So it just, it, it gives you a goal. Like visions are different than goal, right? Goal is something that's attainable that you're going to you go out there and, and hopefully achieve. Right. So we had this kind of goal physical and I like having those in my life. And then a couple of years later, they transformed into Ironmans, actually. I mean, the same actually thing happened. And now that you mentioned that, I was literally with Tim Heil. Yeah. And, and Tim and I were out for a run. He's like, man, have you ever heard of an Ironman? I'm like, I, mean, I don't even know what it is. Tell me what it is. And, and I never swam at the time ever in my life. And he was like, yeah, you got to swim. And the, we were there. Then the next day, he's like, hey, just come to the swim practice with me. I was like, dude, I've never swam. <laughs> like, I mean, I could swim like, you yeah. know, like doggy paddle. Doggy paddle. And I could swim, right? Like I could swim to the shore if I had it to or whatever that looked like. And he said, come to it. I never ended up going there and I never swam before. And I had to borrow goggles and I was like in like board shorts, like, and everyone else is and like, there's a reason why you wear like tight shorts. So you can swim faster. Right. And, uh, it was Tim and I were in our own lane and it was, it was hilarious. Then the next day I signed up for half Ironman. So it's kind of just like, sometimes if we prolong too much, we just don't get anything done. And I think that's one thing about kind of as the first lesson of this is that when something really feels like it's, it's just going to challenge you and it's going to be something that, you know, you're going to learn a lot from and you're going to gain a lot from an experience, just sign up for it. And also how important it is with the people that you surround yourself with. Yeah. I guess that's a really good point because both of those came from influence from other people that mm-hmm. were healthy goals mm-hmm. to be able to kind of quenched my, I have a very addictive personality and so I can get involved with things really quickly. And so it kind of directed it to healthy forms, right? Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a good point who you surround yourself with. And then, because really I learned a lot of not only lessons from there, but it just, um, the Ironman itself has, was a whole other story we get into at some point, but when we were climbing again, Kilimanjaro and also, we also, you know, we, we also did a, uh, I forgot about this. We did a Vermont hiking trip in the fall. You remember this? They flew up to Vermont and we hired a guy to take us out for yeah, four days. Did the, and did their we did, kids come? No, it was oh, just them. Just and we did a hiking trip and we ended up camping out there to kind of test our gear out. Oh, yes. I do remember that. So it was a fun experience in itself. And we just, we were out for three or four days and we got to experience all, you know, so you don't want to be up in Kilimanjaro kind of figuring out your tents. Right? Yeah, right. So <laughs> we, we did this pre-hike and that was super fun. We did that for three or four days. So it's just, you have all these different adventures and um, experience that are in there. Well, and I'm just sorry, another little lesson, but we talk about this often is about um, at some point you need, you have to get on a plane to see your friends. Yeah. And I feel like that is just that in even the Ironmans, cause you've done Ironmans yeah. with some of your yeah. friends from around or even those other adventure trips that you used to go on. Um, yes. I think before 24, maybe you did some afterwards too, but after similar yeah. concept, right? Like yeah. seven days in the, in yeah. the river, yep. flipping a raft and saving a kid's life. Yes. <laughs> Fly or, the, or some of your hunting yes. trips that you've gone or on. Or snowboarding yeah. and yeah. heliboarding trips. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You got to get on your, get on a plane to see your friends. And we just happen to do that through, you know, extreme sports, but you could get on a friend at a beach. 
Mm-hmm. You could get and see friends and, and visit Italy, right? But or, what's what's the what is the meaning behind that phrase? Well, it just means it means that you're essentially most likely you're going to outgrow the conversation in the level of thinking that is around your normal group of people. And th- just even yesterday, I was on a call with one of my coaching clients, and they go, you know, what happens when you outgrow your partner and your friends? And that was a really interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of walked through that because we hear that a lot with people, not a just lot. business partners, but intimate partners. And, 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 you know, I'm never here to tell anybody to, to leave anybody or stay with anybody. That's not my job. My job mm-hmm. is to get you to critically think for things. Well, that's a business partner, intimate partner. And so we just kind of say, okay, well, if you're changing, you know, that's the first step, right? You're and what happens. Here's why it happens. Because when you start to change, what ultimately is, is the, the pull of you trying to be somebody different for somebody else or the old version of you is trying to show up in an old scenario. So for instance, maybe you're making all this change for who you are and you, you're doing that at work. Then you go home and you're, you're having to play back into who you used to be. Right. Or even not in work, but like we've talked about before, like you change as you're doing an Ironman, you change yeah. when you're cha- training for a marathon or Kilimanjaro or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And then you have to go back go back right into your regular life and they're like what's going on yeah and you see that with friends so like you're changing at work maybe even at home then you go hang out with your friends and your friends haven't changed but you have yeah so then there's this pull that they're trying to get you back down to their level right they don't naturally know they're doing that but you're going i see the world differently Mm. and once you see the world differently you can't go back to that level there's nothing wrong or right with that it just means that you've now expanded your viewpoint so as you see that the pull to not want to engage in those conversations grow stronger and stronger each day. That's why you ultimately start drifting away from some of these relationships and finding new ones and finding new ones because you get around somebody and you go, Holy shit. They think like I do. Yeah. I think that we, that happens a lot at um, project you and again, getting on a plane to see your your friends. Like they all travel from around the country to get together four times a year because those relationships and conversations are yeah. so powerful. Yeah. And, and this is not new. I mean, people have been doing this for years, right? Cause they've realized that as you grow, you have to surround yourself by people that are engaged in the same type of conversations you are. Right. And that, and that's different for everybody. It mm-hmm. could be that you really like coding or you really, you know, that's your thing, or you really like, you know, real estate or hotels or, or games, right? Just it, but every time you grow, there's going to be a pull that if you have to go back to uh, a new way, uh, an older way of thinking that engages in a lower level conversation based on your old you, that's going to feel really inauthentic. Um, yeah. There's nothing wrong with the people. No. There's not right or wrong in any of this, by the way. It just is. That's what happens when you start to have to get on a plane is because the level of conversation that you want to be entertained by, meaning that you're being challenged by, is only going to come from people. The larger your life gets, right? The more you grow, I guess a better way of saying it, the more mm-hmm. you grow personally, consciously, right? Spiritually, I don't really want to say it the more that you start to grow there, the harder it is to find people at your level. Um, yes. And I was going to just say part of, for me, some of the distinction is that surrounding being a growth mindset individual and surrounding yourself with that. And oftentimes the people that it's harder to be around are those who have fixed mindsets. Yeah. And we even see this even in our own world where, and we take this for granted. I know I take it for granted, like yeah. just being, have the conversation with you. Like we we're in this world and we are all having, cause we spend you know, 90% of our time time together, just having these conversations. And then you go to another workplace or visit with another group and you're going, wait, what? (laughs) Or not necessarily, like, I'm sure you have some of these conversations with Sarah as I do with Bill. And so it's not, that's fine, right? I can have those conversations with with them, but then it's like almost outside. Like if I get too many layers outside, even my family, some extended family, it's like, oh, those are a little bit more of that fixed mindset. Yes. Um, 
And you recognize it's it easier. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. great. We'll hang out, but I'm not going to, you know, yeah. call them every day. Like my, you know, I call my sister every day yeah. and have those conversations. Yeah. I think the example I gave last week was, you know, for a while, my friends, a couple of my friends from high school, they're actually successful, very successful folks in terms of financial success, bought a second home and they're inviting everybody down, you know, over and over again to, you know, come down and play golf and to hang out and barbecue and all those different things. And it's wonderful, right? It's awesome. I just, never went because I don't really like to drink to that level. Right. I don't really, I, I don't like being out of my routine. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really, I love traveling. So it's not that. And I just knew the, I knew what would happen. Socializing right? with yeah, just it, people. <laughs> just, and, and they're great people too. Yeah. There's different things. It's just, I just, that's not, that's not my game. And then finally they stopped inviting me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I just did. And, and that's not against me. That's just, because I stopped showing up. Right. Right. But, but if I any one, yes, yes. If any one of them wanted to say, Hey, do you want to go for a hike? Do you want to go do an Ironman with me? Can you, can I meet with you and talk about business? Exactly. Can I talk about spirituality? Can You'd I talk about, there. I would be there. And a lot of them listen to this podcast and they love it. But like, I, I know that it's, so for me, I don't want to, you just, it's part of just saying no. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think people have a tough time with that. Even friends that I know that go down there sometimes to, to other friends. And they're like, I went because I felt like I had to. Yeah. I didn't even like it. I don't like the way I feel. I ended up drinking too much. I ended yeah. up not sleeping properly. Now I'm paying for it on Monday. I didn't really have fully engagement on Sunday when I came back. because I was trying to recover from just the weekend, just from staying up late. Right. Mm-hmm. And doing all these different things. And, and it's like, they're like, they come to me. They're like, how do you say no to all this? That was literally their question. They said, yeah. because I would have much rather not gone to that. Yeah. And I just said, well, it's pretty easy. I just say no, because I'm very clear on what I want my life to look like. Well, and you're also okay with other people not liking you for yes, that decision. That's a good point. Yes. Yeah. And some people are not okay with that. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good point. Um, you just, that's why you're just okay with, if you're going to make that decision, there's always a reaction, right? Mm-hmm. Everything has a reaction to it. So you just, but to me, I'd much rather be in control and what I'm doing and what I'm saying and what in, I'm in alignment with yes, yeah, what you exactly. want. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's get on the yeah. plane. <laughs> so anyways, so we, um, we got on the plane, which is by the way, the first time I actually ever traveled first class in a, like international, uh, international, like where the beds, yeah. By the way, that was like amazing. That was like the biggest splurge that I probably had up to that point. That was um, this trip. A, was it a two week or was it a three week, two week total? Two, two week. week. Yeah. 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 And uh, so that was amazing. We actually on the way back. We actually didn't realize I didn't realize what it looked like. And then on the way back, we were like looking forward to it because you had like your own movie theater in there and yeah. you could lay down. It was just amazing. And people have had the opportunity to travel internationally on one of those fly down beds. Uh, it's pretty amazing. But um, anyway, so we get over there. I'll tell you the first thing that kind of shocked me was um, when we got into the village before hiking Tanzania, there was basically one hotel that, that, you know, visitors stayed at. But then I had our guide where we he's like, yeah, hey, just stay around the hotel. And I said, no, 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 we want to actually go into the village. He's like, you sure? So the next day, cause we were waiting a day to go up, he brought us into the village, um, like 30 minutes away from where we were staying mm. in the real village. And we spent like an afternoon there. But one of the first things I'll never forget this is walking through there and a, just seeing two things. One, how much actually joy people had with seemingly nothing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they nothing, right, nothing, nothing. Under no, running, standards, no, yeah. no running water, right? I say nothing materially, yeah, no right, running right. water. They had barely had roofs on their houses. All the, 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 their floors were dirt, right? People ran around. They had like a little market that they all helped with all each other's goods and community that were like, it was be like a cubicle desk next to a cubicle and like three feet wide. Right. And just having all of this. And I remember watching these kids kicking around a soda can that had been wrapped up with duct tape. 
And then, but it was still like, must, must've been like a year old and they were just kicking it and playing it. And they just had shorts on. They were just so free. They were so excited about us coming in there. They're so inquisitive. And I'm like, man, these kids are so happy. <laughs> they don't know any different. They have their own minimal choices and they're just enjoying. I, that, that hit me hard though, because at the time that was my second child that was born. And I'm going, man, I think I'm spoiling my kids way too much. I remember when you said that. Yeah, I mean, I'm back. like, I'm like, man, <laughs> yeah. I'm spoiling my kids way too much. Like I'm giving them too many options. Think about when you have too many options, even mm-hmm. good options. Yeah. Right. Like if you have too many houses, right. I'm not saying you do or I do, but like, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> uh, but I know f- people that do and they're like, you know, it's, it's actually, I have the money to have six houses, but it's actually stressful having them. Right. And so I'm just using that as an example, but you could have, you know, too many clothes you walk in. I don't know. That's, you know, maybe that's maybe something. you have too many. Yeah. Clothes. So whatever for some, I, I mean, I have too, t-shirts. too many pairs of all birds, which yes, ones exactly. do you wear? Yes, exactly. And so it's and whatever those things are. Right. So I just remember man, I got to, I got to just limit the choices. And I sat down with my wife at the time and just kind of, we went through that about creating some new values. So that was some new systems and then sharing that with my kids a lot. And I still share that with my kids about, I want to get them over there once it's time um, that I can too, to have them go work in one of those villages to see how people live in a different culture, but Mm -hmm. also see how happy they are with, with seemingly nothing um, that we do. So that was a really cool experience to go through the whole thing and, um, and kind of see how they live. And it just really eye opening because I'd been to other countries before, but not like that. Right. right? Not like that. And it was just, it was fascinating to see Um, and, and how resilient people are for what they're, what they're living with. Right. And so anyways, so then the next day and how joy come does not come from, it doesn't anything external. It doesn't. No, it doesn't. Um, So anyways, so we, we ended up starting the hike, right? So, um, the first day we get up there and of course, you know, we want to go faster and the whole time they're like slow, 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 because it's all about, it's not, again, it's not the hike itself. It's acclimation of it. And, um, we get up, you know, I think we ended up doing it in two and a half days to do the hike up, which is typically a four day or seven day up so that people can really acclimate and not be, cause the thing is, is it's not as much, if you, get altitude sickness, you can't fix it by stopping. You have to come down. Mm. So once you get it, you have to come down. And, and I think at the time I could be wrong because, um, there, I think like 30% of people do not make it to the top of Kilimanjaro and it's usually not physical. It's mental Yeah. because it is, I'm telling you, it's crazy at the top, the last 5,000 feet, it's really hard to breathe. Um, we'll get to that, but anyways, do they bring oxygen. Some people up? do. Yeah, yeah. Some people do. Yeah. Majority of people do not need oxygen at that level. And and why did it only take you two and a half days versus that? Did you guys just choose to we go, choose to go more, faster because we were advanced group we kind were, of thing? Yeah. 30 yeah. year old kids thinking that we're and actually when I bought like, um, insurance for the trip. But one of the things they said is like, don't be here out there. I, we come in cause we had like global rescue at the time. Yeah. So like if yep. you need to be picked up and they said, we pick so many people up outside of Tanzania, because it's not the older people. It's you, you guys who try to run up this mountain and become sick and have to be pulled out of there. Oh gosh. And so I remember him saying that. So we kind of heated to that messaging a little bit. Um, anyways, so we, we ended up making the first day hike. It was awesome. You know, we had, we, I will say we, we had paid to have somebody that carry like a, uh, like our, our bag. So we just had a day pack that we had to carry. So we we're only carrying the whole thing, which was nice. Um, so we get up there and, you know, we set up the first tent and it's just beautiful. It's awesome. Making friends and just learning people from there. And then the second day we, we, we get up to, um, I think, uh, it must've been three days. So the second day we get up to about 10 or 11,000 feet and we went up, I think to 12,000. Then you come back down to mm. sleep at 9,000 as you go up and come back down. It helps acclimate those things. But at that time, one of our friends that were on there started to have oxygen deprivation. So they measured your oxygen every night and 
typically like your oxygen level should run around really like 99%, but really like 96% or above. Right. And his was down like 90%. So it was kind of like a, like we should pay attention to this. Right. Yeah. And then the next day it's a long trek. So you start early and you just, you go down and then come up and you're working your way all around this. And there's some pretty steep sections there. And you basically get to almost 15,000 feet. Um, and right about 15,000 feet, and this is, I mean, I'm shortening the story, but basically there's a lot of time in there. It's hot, it's cold. You, you know, you're starting to feel altitude a little bit, like you can feel really dry. Um, but up until about 10,000, you're pretty good. And then I could start getting a headache a little bit, you know, all those different things. I didn't take any medicine. I had some, but I didn't take any at all because they said, if you take it when it's time, it doesn't work. And I just didn't want to take it because I wanted to see if I could do it without the medicine. Um, surprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, uh, um, so we ended up, I think the second day we kind of were hanging around 10,000 again, it's beautiful. We had awesome weather. Um, you know, it's obviously at night it gets really cold. And then once you get up to 15,000 feet, this is where things started getting really tricky. This by the way is where crowds started to separate. So the base camp oh, at number yeah. two was full base camp at number three is called base camp number three. And it was our, our third night, third night there. What was a quarter of what it was in base camp too. Is that because people had stopped? People went up and they came back down went up, came back down. So they were really acclimating before oh, they went all the I way see. up there. Okay. That's just why it takes that seven why days. Why it takes the seven days. Cause again, people. it's not that hard to get up there. It's just, it, they go up acclimate up and they keep going back down to I a level see. where they can start really acclimating. It's really the best, smarter way to do it. Right. Got it. Um, but of course we went up there the next day and there was at this base camp. People don't also hang up up there too. So we went up there and again, there's a quarter, but once you get up there, it's, it's like a 10 hour trek to get up there. Well, at least it was for us that day. You mean to the summit? To, no, no, no. To base camp three. Oh, okay. Um, and so basically at that level, at least what we were calling base camp three. And that's at 15,000 feet. So you're above the clouds at this point. Um, it's just remarkable, but it's nobody's talking. No, seriously. Like it starts like people stop talking. It's hard to talk. Conserving energy. It's hard to breathe. Mm. And what's really interesting about... Um, altitude, people don't necessarily always realize this, at least I didn't, it's not necessarily a lack of oxygen. It's the, it's the barometric pressure that drops that puts oxygen into your body. So the, the, when the barometric pressure is like 30, there's enough pressure for you to be able to bring in oxygen into your lungs as it gets below. I think when we were getting to the top, it was like 17 or 18 in the barometric pressure, which means that there's not the pressure to keep the oxygen contained for you to be able to get it in a small breath. So essentially I'm not you know, a scientist here, but that's essentially what happens. Okay. That's why when you, when you're out you have to, you're trying to breathe in, you're trying to create pressure to get oxygen into your body. And that's why it takes a lot to breathe in at the higher altitudes. It's not that there's really a lack of oxygen. I guess you could say there is, it's just not condensed from the pressure so that when you take a normal breath here, mm-hmm. you can get a lot into it. Right. So then you're, you're already taking these deep breaths, which it feels kind of interesting, but this is where things started getting really interesting. So we went up there and they had set up a little tent for us to sit in and, but it's cold up there. Right. I mean, it's freezing. What and time so, did you get, I know you left yeah, we base got, camp we at got 11, there, but no, we, we left, yeah, we left, I think the first, that day we left at like, call it maybe like seven in the morning and we got to the third base camp at call like six o'clock at night. And you were going to hang there for a little bit until yeah, 11. So basically you go. come in there and you're supposed to sleep for a couple hours or relax. Nobody slept. Um, and th- then you summit, right. right? So basically we got up there and we started sitting at a table eating and no, nobody's really saying anything. We're kind of joking around a little bit. And then one of our guys, Aaron was like, Hey, you know, um, he hadn't said anything for a little while and we we're kind of watching him, but we were kind of laughing a little bit. Yeah. And he was like, I think I'm going to go to bed. We're like, okay, great. And our tents up there, there's not much real estate, right? Our tents were like three feet apart. Right. And the, so the, the tent that we were eating in was probably literally no joke, four feet 
from the entrance of our eating tent, which was only like 10 feet wide, right? So it's not like, it's like this big canopy here. So you're in this little room with a little table in there. And uh, so he gets out and starts, we can see his silhouette walking around our tent like two or three times. And we're like, man, what's he doing? We're just doing, we kind of didn't think anything of it. Then we didn't see it. And then all of a sudden, like 10 minutes later, it comes back and we see the silhouette around the, around the tent again. And then all of a sudden we're like, dude, who's that? Cause we hadn't seen anybody. And he opens the door. It's Aaron. He's like, guys, guys, it's crazy. I can't find my tent. And that's right then when Nick looked at me and he's like, oh, that's a problem. Like his tent, we were like, we, we walked outside, we showed him and go, dude, your tent is right there mm-hmm. and it's open. It's got his stuff in it. I mean, it's three feet, three feet from the entrance of where it was. That's when we went and got our guide and was like, Hey dude, like, and then he put his auction level on. It was like an 81% oxygen yeah. and anything below 80%, at least our, our guides were like, you can't go up. We'll take you down. And, so does uh, and it just cause disorientation or, or yeah, confused? You're just not getting oxygen to your brain. Right. Right. You're, there's not enough oxygen in your body and it can cause major problems. And that's at 15,000 feet. And the guy's like, we have to take him down. And of course he started getting loose. He's like, no, I'm going like going. And, and he's like, okay, but if it gets below this, we're going to turn around at any point in time. So we, we were, uh, so we all, after that, we went and laid down and I was actually starting to get concerned for him because I mean, that's, that's pretty interesting. And your mind starts doing crazy things. Like I really, at that point started going like, am I going to make it? Because I'm, I'm sitting there laying there in my bed, just not sleeping, but just laying there resting going, it's hard for me to breathe right now. I'm like, dude, am I going to make this? Like, I remember people saying like marathon runners can't make it up there. It's not to do with your physicality. It's to do with your ability to process, you know, altitude. Every body is a little bit different. And I'm like, man, maybe I'm not going to make it. So I just started, like my mind started going down that path for when I'm tired, haven't eaten right. You're exhausted. You're already losing oxygen. So you can see how your mind starts playing with you. Right. And so it's just, it's, it's, it's from there. And so you had to win over that mind. Right. Um, something that we've always continue to talk about that voice inside your head. I didn't say at the time about your voice inside your head. I wish I had that knowledge then, but anyways, it's just that voice inside your head talking a lot. So we get up and they wake us up and they say, let's go. How did you, I mean, even if you don't have, didn't have the language then, like how did you talk yourself through? I mean, I know yeah. you weren't going to go down, but is that just because you were like, I am not going down? Yeah. And this is, you know, it's really interesting. I was going to say this in a little bit, but since you asked it, I, I see, I, there's the first time I can understand why people die on Everest because when you're climbing, you are so motivated and so inspired and you're there getting there and you have this adrenaline driving you because people don't die going up on Everest. They die coming down. 99% of deaths on Everest happen on the way down. Because they waited too long to go up. Like, I don't know. What does that mean exactly? Well, because you have all, uh, I'll tell you, like, make a, you, people know that I summited it. So basically once you get to the summit, it was the hardest thing about the entire trip was once I got there, I lost my adrenaline. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. And there okay. was no more, like you reached the summit. You're there. We cried. Yeah. It's like, right? there's We're, not the motivation anymore. And all of a sudden you're like literally in that moment. I turn around and I'm like, holy shit, we have to go down. Yeah. Okay. And I'm so tired. And you, you're just going on nothing but energy to get to the top. So let me just, just preface yeah, that. Got it. But anyways, we're, we're going up and, uh, and nobody's saying a word in our group. Nobody, nobody's talking. It's like you're, I'm seeing stars the whole way. And my mind starts getting really like, wow, are we going to make this? You're going to make this. And I'm just there and we, we do a stop. And all of a sudden I look at Aaron and he's kind of like wobbling and our guide comes over out of nowhere and just slaps Aaron across the face as hard as he can. And Aaron's like, wow, I needed that. Like, but like you could tell he was not with it because it normally like, and their guide was trying to see how he responded to the slap. Yeah. Not like he wanted to slap him. Like he was actually seeing like, 
did he even feel this? Right. Or did his head just like, roll? yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he, he did. And he sat down for a little while and kind of came back up. And, and anyways, he's like, he's like, we should turn him around. And, and at that point I was the first, that was the first time I said, you need to go down. Because I saw what happened when he just smacked him oh, on the side of the face. <laughs> and I remember going, he's like, and he's like, no, we're not, I'm not going. And I'm like, dude, you need, you need to go down. Like, he's like, no, I'm right here. That's why when I say like, I see how people die on Everest Yeah, I because see. in that there's, and this is Kilimanjaro, not, I yeah. mean, people in Everest pay $75,000. They wait 10 days to get an opening to go up to the summit. Yeah. They're there at the summit. They've they can see it. They can train it. Yeah. yeah. I can, I totally understand that now. But um, so from how, how I know it was about 5,000 feet between the yeah. two, but like, how long does that take? Um, we started at 11, we summited at 6am. Okay. So it's quite a, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, no, yeah, it's nine, time. nine hours or so. Yeah. So basically what we started doing is we started hiking up and that was about halfway point. So we were like 17,000 feet at that slapped. point. Yes. When he got slapped <laughs> just cause it was there and he rallied, he drank some water, did those things and started getting up there. And, uh, it, it's hard walking. It's freezing at this point. It's still in the middle of the night. I mean, it's, it gets below, you know, negative, it gets negative 50 up there with the wind chill and stuff. So it's, I mean, you're talking serious cold, right? So anyways, we get to, um, we get, we get to about a little halfway, maybe like 18,000 feet or so. And he's like, Hey, remember a little while there's going to be this false summit. And they told you about this false summit for a while. And, and you know about it intellectually, right? You know, that there's a false, summit. by the way, this is also a great business parallel because I can also see why people's businesses go failure because they don't know when to turn around. Mm. They don't know when to stop. They don't know when to sell. They don't need to win to change direction. Yeah. It's because they're so vested into the idea about doing it that they can't see their own blind spots. Yeah, for sure. And so I remember teaching that a lot when thinking about that and that parallels when I came back of being like, I can see why people die on Everest and I can see why people go bankrupt without changing their model blockbuster, right? Because they're mm-hmm. whatever it is, like you're so tied to something or all the companies that never, you never heard of because they weren't able to iterate. I mean, Amazon started off selling books right. I mean, what is that? make up now like 0.0001% of what they do because they iterated. Right. Yeah. And so it's just a great example of where your blind spots that you're not seeing it. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Anyway. So we, we get up there and we're hiking. We knew this false summit. And so I saw the summit and I knew it was intellectually a false summit, but you're kind of out of it. And I remember just getting there thinking, even knowing, but like knowing that it wasn't there, but thinking that it was somehow like they were playing a trick on me. Like that's what my mind was doing. It was like, they're lying to me. They're just doing this. Like, I'm serious. Like all this stuff's going through your mind. And I get there and I look over left and they're not lying. And it's like 700 yards up there, but it's, it's, it's like, I tell her it's like Ram ventilation. You're going, (sighs) like deep yoga breaths, every breath. And you, so you can't move fast. That's why we see people on Everest, like it's only hundred yards, just run up there and touch it. Right. Like Rocky, you can't physically move because there's just a lack of oxygen. It's hard to breathe. It'd be like, I always tell people like trying to walk at your heaviest run that you've ever done. That's what it feels like walking hmm. from trying to breathe yeah, yeah. because you just, that's because you can't get oxygen in. And so you're hiking up and you're doing these different things. And so from that summit on, by the way, that last bit, we walked for maybe, I don't know, 15 minutes and basically Aaron collapsed. And his auction level was super low, but he was still that close. So Nick and I ended up putting Aaron over our shoulders and carried him the rest of the way. And so how long? Like an hour? An or hour like probably, yeah, yeah maybe okay. an hour. It could have been a little bit, maybe a half hour at this point. But like we ended up carrying him the rest of the way and we got up there. And right when he got there, like we all cried because like we were I was, actually, you know, one of the reasons I cried because I cried because I saw the front, I was, I was proud of other people. Yeah. I knew I was, for some reason I just kind of knew like I would do it. Right. Um, and I went, I wasn't 
mean, maybe I was proud for me, but I was mostly proud for like Aaron because how I, I saw how difficult it was over the last couple of days and how it was and how much he struggled, but just didn't stop. And so we all just shared that moment and took some pictures and I turn around to go take another picture and maybe look at something. And all of a sudden I look over and one of the porters has Aaron on his shoulders running down the mountain. <laughs> literally yeah. running down the mountain because I turn around and I go, well, where he's going to like, we need to get him down immediately. Yeah. And so they just took off. Uh, we stayed up there for a few minutes. We saw the sunrise came up, but that's when I said, like, that's when the biggest letdown came after about a half an hour of being up there, max, it was like, Oh my God, I have to go down. Yeah. And it was like, that was the worst part of the entire trip. It was turning around going like, Oh, and then it was like an eight hour venture because you're going past the first base, base camp three. So you're going all the way down to like 11,000 oh, feet okay. that day because yeah. they're trying to get you back down to a level that's reasonable. So we had, it was like a, you climb for like seven or eight hours and then it was an eight hour back down. And that's so and in yeah. the first like 3000, you're still breathing really hard and then it starts getting easier and easier and easier. And finally you're just so tired. I remember it, this is where you had to push so hard in your mind. Like I remember both of us, we were just walking on this trail. I'm so tired and I'm so exhausted. I'm so thirsty and all this stuff. And I saw our tent there and I literally walked into to camp. Just like you see in a movie. And I just, with my backpack and everything, I turned in and I just fell into my camp. And I just <laughs> laid there. I did. I just sat and Nick did the same thing because Nick and I were sharing a room because yeah. Aaron needed his own. And we just laid there with our backpacks on and everything. And it was just, and then we rested, we ate, and then we started getting some energy back up. And I may have took a nap because I think we got down there. We ended up getting there like noon or whatever it was or one. And so we took a little nap and then we ate dinner. And then it started being fun again. We came back down. Um, so that was like, and then from there you get out the next day, right? So you, then you go down there and, and then obviously taking a shower felt amazing <laughs> once you actually got down there. But it was funny. We're all sitting around the hotel and it's kind of interesting thing after and the group had just summited too. That was, that was there, not with us, but it was come down there. Cause again, there was like one hotel for visitors and they were like, we we're all sitting around like having our, like a glass of wine or something. And they were like, Hey, did you guys see that old man getting carried off the mountain? <laughs> And it was, it was, uh, we laughed about it now and, and, and Aaron's there and he's like, yeah, that was me. And they were like, Oh my God, we're so sorry. Like it was, and he was like, no, 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 I did it. And he, and he was all better at this point yeah. too, right. And get the whole thing. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a really, uh, so you asked the question about how did you get through with the mind without kind of knowing the voice. And what I had is I had a little mantra, right? There's two things that I really, that, that played out that I didn't mention. Number one is I had a mantra that I just kept re reciting over and over and over again. And I forget exactly what it was. It was I know we, you shared it I at did. some point. It was, um, I don't know. We'll have to maybe yeah. put in the show notes, but yeah. it was, it was, it was like two or three sentences and yeah, I just kept reiterating yeah. it over and over again. Like basically like my subconscious is strong enough to be able to put me through this different thing. I know it's something along those lines. Yep. And like, I know I can get through it. It just kept reiterating over and over and over again. And just kept, it just helped me not go to the pain and helped me not go to the mind of just derailing me. So it's just something we can do. We can use three, two, one, relax. Now there's a whole bunch of mantras and it's much more common to talk about mantras. Anyways, the other thing was, is about halfway up right before we stopped, we, um, I started laughing, hiking up and when nobody said anything. So like an hour later when we stopped, people were like, why are you keep laughing? And I said, well, the reason why I was doing that is because I love the Navy SEALs. And one of the things that the Navy SEALs do when things are doing hell week is when it gets really, really tough, they laugh as a group. And the laughing helps you prevent you from feeling the pain and or just really focusing on the pain. Mm -hmm. So when it got real like dark, I mean real dark in your eyes because the oxygen and, and things like that, I would just laugh. Because it just shifts your... It just shifts your focus and I would yeah. just start laughing. Or even and, your... I mean, I feel like to a certain degree, it's almost like you can't be angry and exactly. get gratitude at the same time. Can you... If yeah. you're laughing, do you... Yeah. 
feel the pain. I, yeah. I don't know. So the same thing goes like in business or in life, when life's giving you cards that you don't like, you have the opportunity to be angry at the cards or play them and laugh. Right. So it's like all those, that was a wonderful lesson in my life. Like when things get really challenging, which it will almost every day, can you laugh at it? Can you laugh at you? Your business is facing reputational challenges. Can you laugh at it and make a change? You're facing a lawsuit. Can you, can you laugh at it and fix it? It doesn't mean you take an activity, right? It's not right. passivity. And it also doesn't mean that you're not facing reality. No, you're, you're, you're actually, the laughing actually allows to, you to face reality. Yeah. What I was trying to say before is it changes your state. Exactly. Yeah. M back to like a more neutral state so you yeah. can actually solve the problem. Right. Right. And look at it clearly. Um, so that was a great lesson um, to be able to teach it. Then the, the kind of last thing I'll share is we went to the Serengeti. It was called Singita. It was the largest private game reserve in the, in the entire Serengeti. And the guy that actually ended up, we ended up learning history, it's 300,000 acres. And the guy used to be a big hunter there. And then he, he was a billionaire on Wall Street, and then he had a whole change, and he didn't want to hunt anymore. And so what he ended up doing is he, he, he leased the land, but in order to the way, the way he did it is he, had to buy, he has to buy the hunting licenses every year for that area to be able to prevent people from doing it. So that's how his oh. fees go. Yep. Anyways, we're there, and uh, the thing, I did see a cheetah stalk a, because it, it was a private thing, so we could drive anywhere around there. I saw a cheetah actually hunt a gazelle for like six hours. And I'll tell you five out of the six hours, five hours and 50 minutes was boring as heck. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it was the patience of yeah, this cheetah. Yeah. It would just, it was, it would stay low creep and you could barely see it and it would creep and then it would chase and miss one chase and miss one. And then finally it just, one just happened to like walk by. Oh <laughs> I mean, I was like, dude, dude, cause we could see it. We're like, Oh, we're like, he's not, he's, he's not gonna, he's going to get it because the gazelle kept walking right towards him. Just didn't know. Yeah. And then you could see the cheetah and then it just pounded it within like five seconds. It grabbed it. And we drove up, you can see the pictures, we drove up to like seven feet from the cheetah, blood all over his mouth. Because cheetahs, they spend so much energy when they kill, they actually don't eat right away. Mm. They stop and pause and they try to, like a leopard will drag it up in a tree. Right, right. A cheetah will try to drag it to a shaded area to preserve it because they can, they're can. they so burnt out from the hunts. They can't even enjoy it. So it's yeah. like the recovery time, right? Yeah. Like we all have to have recovery time. Then we just, so that was a really interesting thing to watch that whole thing unfold, but just watch how like nature recovers. And the interesting thing is they would eat, they also knew that there was a lot of predators like hyenas that would overcome them or lion, like a pack of lions. A cheetah can't do anything to that. So they had to protect their kill. Mm. So they would try to eat as much as they can and relax, eat as much as they can relax, only knowing they had a very limited time. Right. They had that cheetah had less than an hour and a pack of hyenas were on there. Uh, and yeah. they just moved them away. So they spent all this different time doing this, and that's why hyenas travel in packs because they need to have the pressure to be able to push the animal off it. So they because they don't really kill anything by themselves. They always take things that something else right, is already killed. Yeah. But it was just also then you can also start to see how everything's interconnected. Then we started then a guy was that was showing us um you know, uh, like how all like the birds, these birds eat certain nuts, but they don't, they don't eat the outside shells. They only eat inside, but they crack them all and they fall on the ground. And then this bird eats that. And then it, it drops over here. And then this squirrel, eats. he was showing us how everything it was the first time in my life that I saw how in nature, how everything was so, and maybe I hadn't been on device for 14 days, right? Like yeah. <laughs> just how interconnected everything was. And there was a reason for everything. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why animals hunt. And then, you know, and other animals are hunting packs. And then some birds don't eat the outside shells, but some do because each one has a process to play. Right. I was going to say purpose. Yeah. Yeah, they do. And it all supports life. It's like life knew what it was doing or something. Yeah. And so it was, it also kind of started my inward journey of realizing that, Hey, life knows what it's doing. It's giving you cards every day. It doesn't care if you like the cards from your mind, but it knows what it's doing. It mm -hmm. 
pretty, for the most part, it knows how to supply rain and knows how to, you know, deforest things from natural fires to regrow things, not necessarily to our advantage as we see it, but as nature as a whole for 4.8 billion years, it's done a pretty good job of raining a pretty good job of providing things. Yes, there's sometimes it misses it, right? But nature supports everything. It supports you. It gives you everything you need. Right, and, and, and I was just going to say, like, in the missing, and I'm thinking of, like, the Dust Bowl or, you know, yeah. whatever, where there was no rain, but maybe that in and of itself served some purpose. Purpose that we can't see. Right. It's always, it's only until you can get the broader context. Like, the bird doesn't know it's dropping for something else. It just knows it's going after that. The apple tree doesn't know it's producing apples for something else to have. Right. Then we hoard everything. Right. This is doing yeah. so Western realist. But that was it was really interesting to see how everything I mean, everything was so interconnected. The paths that, you know, the wildebeest and the great migration create and what that turns up to allow another animal to come through and get certain nutrients from the path that it comes. Everything has this interconnected play to it. Well, while you were there, were you singing um, Lion King songs in your head? Maybe the a whole little time? bit. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the coolest moments of my life was when we were. Uh, we were just laying out and they, and, and Singita is a, is a pretty luxury resort, but it's all, it's like luxury tented, tented resort. So everything's outside. Oh, you so were, you were glamping. We're glamping big time. And these outdoor <laughs> showers glamping. Right. And, uh, you know, we weren't allowed to walk at night in case a tiger there, but we would be sleeping and you could hear tigers walk by and lions roaring, walking by your tent. I don't think tent. there are tigers. They're tigers and they're lions. <laughs> lions. <laughs> but one of the cool things was one, one day after a morning, um, kind of going looking around for things. You had like a time just relax. And so they had these like a twin bed set up. Like that's what they had. Like they were like not twin beds, but they were the size of a twin bed under like a hundred yards away from the cabins or their little tents underneath these big shaded trees. And you could just sit there and watch the entire Serengeti from like this viewpoint. And I remember just for like every day, as soon as we get out, I just go there and I would just sit there and watch by myself. Cause you know, I'm introverted and I had to be around a lot of people. And I would just sit there and watch. And it was so perfect out. Like the breeze, like there'd be a draft and then you'd see a, a lion run by and they just started becoming ordinary. But it was just like this amazing, just watching how everything unfolds. And then also watching the fact that there was predators and prey interacting with each other within 30 yards. Hmm. But yet yeah. there was never like, it would be like there'd be a lion and a giraffe there, but sometimes they attack giraffes, sometimes they don't. Or there'd be like hyenas and lions just kind of laying down when they were hungry. It was almost like nature. Yes, they attack each other sometimes, but a lot of times they don't. It's like they interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just really cool to watch all of that unfold. And, and, you know, just like sometimes humans don't fight each other, sometimes they do. It's like there's like this, this yeah. you know, push and pull, but there's also like this camaraderie of interconnectedness of everything. And that was just that kind of cemented it in there. And I always kind of go back to just laying there of what that, what that was like in that moment. I actually want to go back there at some point and experience it with my family when they're old enough to actually experience it because it, it, it it's, there's a lot, there's a lot of animals going around. Right? I was going to say, would you do just the, the Serengeti thing? Yeah. I mean, I would, yeah. I would climb it if they wanted to, um, but we'd have to see, but yeah, that was the, so that was just the whole interconnected. So whenever you, you know, spirituality, business meets spirituality, you know, in the easiest of definitions, it just means that spirituality just means there's something larger than you. And I think of anything from this story and what I really want to convey in this hundredth episode is that we are all so interconnected. Every one of us, we're interconnected. We understand life supports life. It supports us even when it doesn't happen. And life is truly unfolding for you. It's not happening to you. It's happening for you. We just have to get out of our own way. And that was just a wonderful lesson that we can all take away is when life gets really tough to pause experience what you're experiencing, but ask yourself the question of what is life trying to teach me here? Because there is no accidents or no mistakes if it's happened, because by definition, it should have. 